Small Farm Nation is sponsored by Farmers Web, software for your farm. Farmers Web helps farms inform buyers of available product, handle orders, simplify customer interactions, and reduce the administrative load. So check them out at farmersweb.com. Imagine only having eight bucks in your pocket and wanting to start a farm. What can you do? Hey, it's Tim Young of SmallFarmNation.com. Today I'm talking with well-known farmer Greg Judy, who rose from the ashes of divorce to create a 1,600-acre farm with other people's money. Hey there, thanks for joining me here as we kick off Season 3 of Small Farm Nation, and I'm thrilled to have the support of Farmers Web. They have some awesome software that helps many farmers. I remember last year, Greg Gunthorpe and I talking about how much he relied on Farmers Web when I interviewed him. So check them out at FarmersWeb.com. Now, before we dive into my discussion today with Greg Judy, let me tell you what to expect this year. I'm going to be doing lots of interviews with folks involved with all aspects of sustainable farming. Now, that means all types of farmers for sure, but I'll also be talking with other businesses who bring you sustainably produced farm products. I'm even going to be talking with people who cover regenerative agriculture and sustainable farming in the media. So whether you're a farmer or whether you want to become a farmer or whether you're a local food advocate, you're really going to enjoy this season. And it's nice to kick off the year by hearing from Greg Judy. Now, I'm not going to give you his story since he'll do that in a second, but if you're not familiar with Greg, he's well-known for two things in the farming community. The first reason he's well-known is that he's created a sizable farming operation by first custom grazing other people's cattle before later leasing many different farms himself. So Greg and I recap how he got started, mistakes he's made, and what he looks for in terms of farm properties. He shares his best tips on negotiating leases, what fencing tools to use, and even what type of cattle to raise for his type of model. The second reason Greg is well-known to pasture-based farmers is that he practices mob grazing, or putting lots, and I mean lots, of ruminants on a small piece of land and moving them multiple times a day. So it's a really interesting story. He's a really great guy. And with his experience, he has a lot to share. So let's just dive right in to my discussion with Missouri farmer, Greg Judy. Greg Judy, glad to have you on Small Farm Nation. And let's start with this. When did you actually start farming? Um, Probably... I started doing it wrong in about nice. Let's see, uh, nineteen ninety one. I bought my first set of ca- yeah. I bought my first set of cattle and did the conventional buying the land and the equipment and doing what all the professionals told me to do. You know, you know, feeding grain and just really wasn't focused at all on managing grass. So, and probably probably putting down fertilizer and all the stuff they told you to do. Oh yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, at the end of the year, there just wasn't much potential or profit left in what I was doing. I, I loved the, the livestock and the land and all that. And, of course, the land I bought was in the family for like 50 years. Hmm. So I had that feeling of wanting to, you know, keep it in the family. And uh, But I just couldn't see a way it was going to happen using conventional agriculture practices. So. so, you know, it's kind of interesting. It's a similar story. I don't know if you know Will Harris down at White Oak Pastures, but it's a similar story that Will always tells me about how he was always putting down ammonia nitrate and doing what they told him to do. And it just was a, 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 spir- a death spiral, basically. And he had an awakening as yep. well. So I, I understand your awakening was this isn't financially viable, but... No. What 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 did you then do? What when you had that realization? Some people would get out of farming, but you didn't get out of farming. So, how did you decide what to do? I started looking for other people that looked to me like they were uh, doing things different than I was doing, and had you know, like around here, I had a, a real good friend that had uh, the same drought that I had. He lived seven miles from my house, but yet he had grass and I didn't. Huh. And I got to look and I'm like, what's going on? Is your land better than mine? He goes, no, not really. I said, well, why do you have grass and I don't? And he had like, at that time, probably 25 paddocks set up and he was rotating. He was rotating animals. And I'm like, 
it looks to me like you just messed up a good farm putting in all this fence. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be hard to cut hay so, now. Yeah, it's hard to cut hay. You know, it's funny you say that. Uh, that was the first thing out of my mouth. Yeah. When I saw his farm, I was like, you're wasting all this grass. You could roll that up into hay. Right. And, you know, my thought process was just so backwards. I thought hay was a sign of wealth. Mm. You know, the more hay bales you put up, my God, you're pretty well off. Right. You know. <laughs> and, and was he actually doing an early form? I mean, he was obviously rotational, traditional grazing, but I guess he wasn't mob grazing, was he? No, no. Nothing like and that. And it's so fun to, to talk with him today because he comes to my farm now. We hosted a the grazers group here for Boone County several years ago. And he came and he's like, Greg, he said, I can't believe how far you've come. He said, you've passed me up many times over. And I'm like, Steve, I said, you're the guy that got me going. Hmm. And he gave me that first copy of my Stockman grass farm. Hmm. And he also told me about the schools that he went to up in North Missouri. Uh, the university of Missouri had at that time, the Linnaeus grazing school, which is taught by Jim Garish. And so that was a big, that was a big uh, block for me to get up on. And well, when I came back from that class, I just, like, I couldn't get enough of it. Right. Know? Right. So, I so when you learned about this rotational grazing and you saw it firsthand, what did you do? Did you go back to your land and install permanent fencing or what'd you do? Yes. I immediately started throwing wires up in lanes and, oh, I made so many mistakes. But, you know, I was, I wanted to do something. And I was so flabbergasted with the results I saw of people that, you know, they, their cattle were fat. They had probably three to four times more grass than I did. And they were running more animals than I were, than I was on the same amount of land. I'm like, something's, something's not kosher here. And I really did think that they were maybe, you know, feeding hay or grain or something to allow them to run that many more animals. But, Bottom line was it came back to management. Got it. When did you, so when did you, and how did you make the transition from owning this family land to then getting into renting or leasing farmland? Yeah, the, the big one for me was uh, in 19, let's see, 1996. I went through a terrible time in my life. You know, I went through a divorce and it lasted for six years basically took me out almost i you know i didn't go bankrupt but i was awful close and so i was forced during that time period to keep a payment on my farm i went and approached another landowner about bringing his cattle over to me another cattle owner and uh, so i started custom grazing his cows on my land and i didn't i couldn't own anything because you know i was still messed messed up in that divorce thing but as soon as uh, that divorce is over, I'm like, you know what? Running other people's cattle on your land or somebody else's land is like having a paycheck every month. And so I immediately, uh, well, I read an article and you know, the, the, the title of the article was basically why own the land, control it. And so he was, he was talking about leasing and it just made so much more since and one sentence said your sole purpose in life should not be to own the land but to control it mm. and boy i mean it hit me like a brick and i started looking around the neighborhood and man there was so much land around here. nobody's doing anything with it. it didn't have any fence on it it didn't have any water on it uh it was growing up in brush a lot of it had been hayed until there wasn't anything left but broom sedge which tells you the soil is bankrupt and so I started approaching my first landowner uh, was a guy who lived in Dallas, Texas. And I got it. I got that first lease, 160 acres. And that gave me the, uh, you might say, the, the confidence to go after more leases after that because he was such a great landowner. Um, I found out that landowners like to see their property taken care of. And so that's kind of how I built my business was out of the landscaping business. I, I make my farms beautiful. Mm. Uh, we don't just go in there and slap up some wire. I mean, we want them to look nice. Mm. And that's a show place. So we can use that show place to show the next landowner what we can do to their land. 
You know, I've heard so many entrepreneurial stories. Uh, there's a lot of people that want to be entrepreneurs in life, as you know, and that I, I see countless people who dream of starting a business and never do. But most of the really great success stories that I've witnessed are these silver linings, a divorce that forces you to go, I can't be out laying capital. I've got to find a way to make it. And what a brilliant strategy, because not just do you get to conserve capital by renting or leasing land, but I believe there's some tax advantages too, right? Oh, big time, big time. You know, when you lease a piece of property, 100% of that lease payment is tax deductible. It's a business expense. When you buy property, you, you can deduct the, the uh, interest, but you can't deduct the principal. Yeah. And so I couldn't afford to buy anything. I didn't have any money. Uh, I was really scared. I was scared that I was going to lose my family farm. I mean, this is a farm that my uncle bought back in 1949 and he got killed in 1967 and i tell you it's just part of me i wanted to preserve my uncle scott's farm so bad but i couldn't see how i was going to be able to do it and uh i looked at my checking account in what was it 19 about 1999 i had eight dollars in my checking account <laughs> That was going to get me by to my next two weeks. Yeah, come, 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 come on, Greg. That's like 12 bucks today. So that's not so bad. It was $8. That's all <laughs> I had in my checking account. for, And it had to last me for two weeks. Oh, man. And uh, people said, well, why don't you ever carry any money? I said, well, if I carry money with me, I know I, I might spend it. But I didn't have any to carry. So it was easy not to carry any. Oh, geez. But, you know, when I got that low, there was only one way out. That was up. There was either quit and give up or just, you know, walk away or, or come up with a new strategy. And I, I just, I was, I was just consumed by it. I, I knew I had to find a way to get out. So you started by custom grade, you rented land and you custom grazed other people's cattle on your land. So at some point yes. you made the transition to owning your own herd or starting at least yeah. your herd. When did that happen? I started my own herd in 2003. Now we started out with 22 cow calf pairs and we would actually graze those graze that herd with custom grazed herds and so it wasn't like i just had 22 cows on one farm i might have 150 out there but 22 of those were mine mm. and over time i just kept building and building and building every time i got a nest egg put together you know another 20 30 maybe 40 thousand i'd go out and buy more more of these south pole cattle that we had today and then I started internally building. I had enough cows now that I could save my best heifers. And today uh, we range somewhere between 250 and 400 head, depending on the time of the season. That are we own your, everything. And that's your herd? Do you still yes. do any custom grazing for anyone else? No, we don't. Uh, we stopped custom grazing in 2012, was the last year I believe we custom grazed. Hmm. But uh, it, it's a great way for me to use other people's capital, their, their, uh, their livestock, to beat these old farms up, get that thatch placed on the ground, get some biology going in the soil, and build a nest egg at the same time. So here's the, here's the cool thing. Um, we graze cattle 12 months out of the year. So when the green season was done and the growing season, they would buy hay. And I would, I would go get it. I would put, have the hay delivered to my farms. And so in the wintertime, all these old worn out soil bankrupt farms, I was just smothering them with purchased hay through other people's cattle that they paid for. So they bought the hay. I fed their cattle on my lease farms, and they basically repaired my farms for me huh. for free. Wow. And I got paid to do it. <laughs> wow. Now, are yeah. you are you feeding hay now, or are you grazing no. year round? Are you stockpiling now? Now, when you say feeding hay, uh, we we do graze year round. I do always purchase some hay. It's like an insurance policy. I mean, right. you wish you don't have to use it, but if you got it and your house burns down, you'll be happy you had it. And so we 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 keep some hay out here. We get some pretty bad weather here in Missouri occasionally, and. But it's not our mainstay. We, we, we graze, try and graze all, all winter long. Wow. So, you know, your story is well known to a lot of people in the farming world. 
And, you know, so many of them see kind of where you are now, which is which is kind of the after picture. And they're trying to figure out how to get started with renting land or leasing land. How what, what tips do you have for someone who wants to approach someone to uh, position a deal or negotiate a deal for renting or leasing land to graze? Well, there's quite a bit of things. There's a there's a lot of different steps that go into that. And I think primarily, number one, you know, when you meet that landowner and you reach out and shake his hand, you're you have already placed an impression in his mind what kind of person you are. Just by your appearance and the way you shake his hand, the way you look him in the eye. And if you give him this hand out here and it feels like a a wet napkin there's no structure to it i call it a limp fish handshake uh that's that's the business turnoff to me right and so a good handshake meeting the guy head on and then telling him your story tell him what you do tell him where your farm is in relation to his and it does help if you've got a what i call a home base and that can be five acres but if you live in the community that you're trying to lease from, that gives you credibility. And if you're a newbie coming in, you don't have that such a place, well then try and make a contact with somebody that's grazing and taking care of land like you're gonna be doing and ask them if you can bring a prospective client over there to show them what you're gonna do. This is, what, this is my plan for your farm. And we've got a huge advantage. We've got, well, we've got 16 of them. So we can pick, I mean, we can just make a whole day out of just one farm tour to the next showing these guys what we're doing. And so, yeah, it's, it's all about showing them what you got, but you don't, that first impression that you make, don't take a lot of their time. People are busy today and that, you know, they may not have time to spend an hour with you. What would, so you pitch, I like to, what would you pitch as the main benefits to the landowner? So if I go into them and say, hey, I, here's what I'm doing. I'm in your community. I'm raising some cows, but I really like to raise more. Here's the, but that's enough about me. Here's the benefits to you if I do this. If I take over the uh, management of your farm, we're going to be building soil. We're not going to be hanging it. So we're not removing nutrients. We're adding nutrients to your land. We're going to basically control all that woody brush invasion that's taking over your farm. We're gonna clean up the fence rows. We're gonna take off any trash that we see. Our purpose is to make your farm look like a show place. So the aesthetics, the aesthetics, when you drive by your farm, people just go, wow. Mm -hmm. that's, 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 that's a beautiful landscape. And so that's, that's kind of what we're trying to do. Is yeah, and it's funny. Give the landowner from, and it's funny you use that word landscape because in a way that is what you're doing. You're not only you're grazing for you, but you're landscaping for them. Absolutely. Absolutely. And this new practice we've just got into uh, called civil pasture. Well, that's a big one because we have a lot of timber around us. And when you go in in civil pasture and create civil pasture along the road frontages, place a brand new fence in front of that civil pasture, and you drive by, your mouth just flops open. You're like, man, that's, that's beautiful. That's just beautiful. It's a beautiful savanna-like landscape. And so that, that's a big tool. Hmm. Um, so, so in terms hunter, of... Hey, hunter. Uh, I'm sorry? The, the hunter landowners, that, that's a big one for them as well. Hmm. So in terms of um, um, deal structure, in terms of how long of a deal would you require and things like that, how would, how would you recommend someone approach that? I, I wouldn't ever lease a farm from year to year. Um, and I don't do handshake uh, leases either. You need to have it written down and it can be fairly simple, but it needs to state the length of the lease. Of course, you know what you're gonna pay for the lease, maybe a, a general idea of what you're gonna be doing, what you won't do as far as if he has water on the farm, like some ponds, you're not gonna let the cattle in the ponds. Um, you're gonna place tanks where they can drink out of the tank. Uh, landowners are really concerned about mud. They don't like to see a lot of muddy spots on the farm. And so we really focus on that. We don't want to destroy their farm. Uh, the other thing is if you do make a mistake on their farm and you do create a mess, well, you want to own up to it right away. And most landowners will forgive you. But if you hide it, don't tell them. And they come out there and find it. 
And that's not a good thing. Do you find that for the most part, um, or how often are you putting wells on farms or ponds versus there's already a water source there for you? Uh, we've probably over half the farms that we've leased uh, didn't have water. And so we offer to build a pond on the farm as long as we can deduct that off the cost of the lease. And let's say, you know, we get a thousand dollar a year lease and we build a three thousand dollar pond on So the first three years, we're not going to pay him anything because we already put the pond on. That would be the cost for the first three years. I won't lease a farm for less than six years. I've got to have six years. You try and go for the maximum number of years you possibly can get because it just goes by so quick. Right. So at least six years, but preferably like 10 if you can get it. Yes. Yes. And on water, you know, some of the farms we've got had water meters on. City, or we call it county, pressurized water. All we have to do is pay the meter. And so that's really pretty nice. You got pressure there. You don't have a pump. You don't have a pressure tank. You just hook onto it. Above ground piping, or if the landowner wants and he's willing to uh, give you a longer leash, you can even afford to bury it. I mean, just bury it. Mm-hmm. The water pipe, when you can, let's say, take 100 acres and you can run a water point down the middle of that 100 acres. Oh, my goodness. That really opens up some real possibilities of. You know, be on the grace and pretty good, pretty good uh, sized herds in there. And when you start fasting in all these other farms onto your farm, that's a big one too. Are you only putting ponds in when there's higher elevation so that you can use gravity for distribution? Or are you putting ponds in even if it's a flat farm? If it's a flat farm and I've got just a little bit of water catchment, uh, you know, if there's anything above my pond that I can catch a little bit of water, I'll put a pond in. And then once I put the dam in, so you're putting that pipe on the very bottom of that dam when it's built. And so if you get, let's say, 12 foot of water over the top of that pipe, you've got six pounds of natural pressure. For every foot of water that you cover a pipe up with, you gain a half a pound of natural pressure. And so you can trench. I don't ever put a tank right behind my pond dam. I like to get it out 100 feet, 200 feet, four. Get it, get it away from that pond because now it allows you to do more uh, wagon wheel type paddies coming to it. If you're right up against the bank of that pond, you've already messed yourself out. You've already messed yourself up on two directions. You can't bring him down over that pond dam. I'll be right back with more of Greg's sage advice, including how much he pays for his farm leases right after this. Hey, Small Farm Nation. Ever wonder why some farms have a wait list of loyal customers while you work an off-farm job and struggle just to stay afloat? Well, the secret to having a thriving farm business isn't a secret at all. It's called marketing. Successful farms know that marketing is the first priority because without customers willing to pay the prices you require, your farm can't survive. But here's some exciting news if you struggle with farm marketing. Now you can become a farm marketing ninja just by joining smallfarmnationacademy.com. Small Farm Nation Academy is jam-packed with farm marketing video lessons, downloadable resources, mastermind calls with successful farmers, and a rich community forum. If you're struggling with your farm's website, you can even get a modern farm press website for your farm included for free if you'd like. And get this, if you'd like personal guidance specific to your farm business, you're in luck. Because SmallFarmNationAcademy.com members get one-to-one coaching from Tim Young, free, anytime. It's like having Tim as your on-call farm marketing mentor. By applying what you'll learn in Small Farm Nation Academy, you'll become the preferred brand in your market. So instead of struggling to find customers, customers will seek you out. Isn't it time that you made marketing the priority of your farm business? So head over to SmallFarmNationAcademy.com right now and get growing. So this next question, I bet you get all the time, and we both know there's no right answer to this because I'm going to talk to you about how much you pay for farmland, and I'm sure the answer is going to be, well, sometimes it's free and sometimes it's a lot. But generally speaking, how will a new person, uh, let's say a farmer wants to approach someone and that that issue comes up, um, how do they assess what's the right amount to pay for that property? It all... Trace, well, it traces back to several different things. One is how much infrastructure is there. If you've got really good perimeter fence, 
you've got good water, you've got a handling facility, you've got a gravel road coming in there, you've got electricity, you're going to give top price for that lease. Um, you, you know, and whatever that is in your area. Here in Missouri right now, top price is, uh, the cattle market's dropped in half in the last three years. So it's, uh, I just talked to a guy last week, he's paying 30, $30 an acre. And that's for a pretty nice farm. I mean, it's got good fence on it. He's, he's not grazing it, right? He's grazing the whole entire farm as one, but we, won't, we don't need to go into that. Uh, but he said he couldn't make it. He couldn't make it on $30 an acre. Well, I can see why he, yeah. he wasn't managing his grass. But um, if nothing is there, you know, you can't afford to go in there and pay him a lot of money for that lease if he doesn't have any fence and he's not willing to build the fence. He wants you to build the fence. That's the thing. Some of these landowners don't want to put any money into the property. Now, if you're willing to do that, make sure you know what the cost of that fence is before you get started in your labor. That needs to be negotiated into the lease. Uh, I had one farm. I, I didn't pay him anything for the first five years. Because he didn't want to put anything in the fence or the water. So I did it all. And I still got that farm. I've had it 18 years. Wow. So when, let's, say, let's say you go to a farm that's bare land, because I see a lot of that around here and i'm sure you see that i mean it's it's a, there's a lot of grass a lot of times these people just have someone local come in and cut the hay and they give it to them just so they can get the grass cut but that's all they're doing <laughs> if, if you go yeah. into a place if you go into a place like that would you go in and let's say you got a 10-year deal on they said fine you can graze it would you go in and put in permanent perimeter fence or would you do all portable electric fence i'd put in a good permanent perimeter fence so now I can keep the animals on the farm. When I say permanent fence, I'm talking a five wire high tensile fence. I don't use any barbed wire and no woven wire. Would you do five wire, five wire because you're doing multi-species grazing or are you just doing cows? Both. Uh, cattle, sheep, uh, that will hold in most, most goats. You can't hold in a goat, Greg. <laughs> There's no way. Yeah. We don't we don't run our pigs in the pasture. We keep them back in the timber. But uh, a five wire fence, Tim, what that allows you to do allows you to sleep at night. Because if you have a heifer that's bowling and a bunch of bulls get after her, and you've only got a two wire fence out there, she through that fence because a bull's been chasing her. She's out on the highway now. She gets hit. Guess what? You're liable. Now some states. It's not that way. But in Missouri, if your livestock are on the road, they can sue you. Mm. So I sleep good at night. We've got yes. a good charger. Uh, we have hot, hot, hot fences. We keep them tight and clean. Yep. So, so that's, a, that's a good point, I think. The whole sleep at night thing is a good point. It's worth it to put in that perimeter fence because you're negotiating at least a six-year deal. And, the, and yes. not, only, not only do you get the ability to sleep at night, that caveat of you putting in perimeter fencing adds value to the property so it's easier to sell the landowner on the lease. Absolutely. Uh, the last two farms that I've leased, um, both of them had basically, well, this last one we just got, the latest one, it had zero. It had zero fence on it except for where I touched him. I touched him on one side with one of my other leased farms, and so I did have one side fenced. So we, we had to go in and roll up the old wire. There was old barbed wire laying everywhere. We, had, we rolled up all the old wire, then we built the brand new fence. Hmm. And that's, that's something I'll say. Don't get in a, a hurry and put up your new fence when you got an old fence laying right there. Hmm. It will be a wreck. Because hmm. it's just a matter of time that old fence gets up on your new fence and it's dead. You can't keep it hot. Hmm. So you mentioned, it looks bad. you mentioned you have your, your fences are really, really hot. Does that mean that you require your farms to have electrical or are you generating uh, that voltage some other way? Yeah, it's, uh, well, they have some excellent, uh, you know, basically solar chargers today. You can use a solar panel. And um, I have found that, see, electric fences are measured in joules, joules of output. You can get more joules cheaper with a plug-in charger than you can a solar charger. And so I, I use all plug-ins. Um, I'm fortunate enough that our farms touch a lot of them. And so I can use one charger to power five farms. And you can do that. That's pretty uh, economical. 
So is so, there, since you, since you must be using their list, their existing electrical, is that part, is that, I mean, and I know that's a minor expense, but somehow are you guys metering that and you're paying for that or how does that work? It's in my name. The, the meter is on, on my name. Got it. See, all the farms I've got, I don't have anybody living on, let's see. I think you, well, out of the 16 farms, there's only two that have people living on them. And I don't use their electric on the two that they're living on. I'm coming off of my own meter. So, and I can prove to people that electric fence does not use any, it doesn't use any uh, kilovolts. So you're paying for, you're paying for kilowatt hours when you get your meter, when you get your electric bill. I worked in the electric utility industry for 30 years in town. That's what my job was. And if you plug in your, if you turn on your oven, <laughs> run out there and look at your meter that sucker is spinning yep go out there and plug in your electric fencer you can't even it won't even move it it won't even move it unless unless you take a steel post kind of get it started in the ground a little bit then let it fall over on that fence <laughs> your meter will start turning on the electric fencer because it's pulling amps it's amps that make the kilowatt hours move not volts huh. okay? Let me, so what about uh, the issue of insurance when you're, when you're going onto somebody else's property and you're negotiating this lease for six years, uh, I mean, they're at some risk of some liability or exposure unless you're properly insured. So what are you doing to protect we, we, yourself? Yes, we, we carry a, a rider liability policy on every farm that we have. And so our insurance agent has the legal description of every farm that we have leased. And so if something would happen on one of those farms, our insurance will cover that. That's another good reason to have a good fence. I've never, I wish I had there's some wood here on knock on. I've never had an animal yet get out on a public road. I've had a few get out on gravel road where I don't have five wire fence, but I just, they don't get out. So, you know, so today on, I understand that you're, you're what, about 16 farms and about, is it 1600 acres or something like that? Yes. Uh-huh. And so you're, yes. you're raising multiple species. You talked about raising pigs. I know you used to raise Tamworths. I don't know if you still are or not. I think you used to raise St. Croix sheep. I'm not sure what kind of sheep you're raising. And of course, you've got a 250 or 300 cattle out there. What are you doing with all these animals? How are you going to market to sell them and create a market for them? We've got a really diverse uh, marketing uh, strategy. We, we've got, first of all, we're selling seed stock in the form of uh, males to be bulls or rams. And then on the uh, female side, we're, breed, we're selling, you know, red heifers, even open yearling heifers. And then we got grass-fed beef, grass-fed lamb, and of course pasture-raised pork or woods-raised pork. Uh, we, we don't have any seed stock in the pork business. We actually buy feeder pigs on that. Uh, we do sell quarters, halves, and holes. And now we are in a USDA plant, and so we can sell it by the cut. That's a small percentage of our business. Uh, we sell a lot more quarters, halves, and holes than we do, let's say, five pounds of wind. And I, I like the bigger order market. I don't, you know, your time is worth something. And if you can, one of the markets I've got into is selling steers, whole steers, to other grass-fed producers. And you go, well, why would they buy your steers? Well, they can't raise enough because right. they got too small of an operation. So I guess the biggest order I've ever done was a semi-load. We actually sold a whole semi-load of steers to a Thousand Hills Cattle Company up in yep. Minnesota. That was a pretty good check to have drive off my farm. And I sold, you know, 45 steers in one foul swoop. And I dealt with one customer. Now, if you're a small operator, it behooves you to sell them by the cut because you're going to get more for them. Wholesale versus retail, you're looking at a retail probably 2500 maybe 2700 Wholesale, you're looking at maybe 1800 to 2000 So there's a big difference there, you know. But, you know, Ian, the old guy from Africa, told me, he said, Greg, what do you like to do? Do you like to sit on the parking lot Saturday morning selling meat or do you like to be out moving your cows? <laughs> That was an easy one for me. That is, that is an easy one. Well, speaking of Ian, you just mentioned, I'll let you talk about him in a second. You had this revelation back in the 90s 
um, when you went to meet a fellow farmer about, wait a minute, he's doing rotational grazing. And then if you go back, then if you go forward to 2005, 2006, that's probably when you first met Ian and you, you had another revelation. So tell us about that. Yeah, that was a major turning point in my life. Um, Ian Mitchell Ennis is a South African high density grazer. Uh, they run about 14,000 acres and he runs anywhere from four to 6,000 cows on it. And, you know, I heard Ian talking about, you know, we're not, we're, we're not, we're not grass farmers. I'm like, what do you mean we're not grass farmers? I was, I stuck my chest out. I'm a grass farmer. No, he said, you're really a microbe farmer. He started talking about these microbes. And he said, if you take care of your microbes, everything else will take care of itself. And you need to look below the soil. There's more animals living beneath the soil than there is above the soil, as far as pounds per acre. And if we'll learn to feed those things, keep their little heads covered with litter, animal impact, breaking the litter down on the ground, you just get a whole, there's a whole host of things that start to improve. So with mob grazing, you're actually getting more litter trampled. You've got one large group, you're moving across the landscape, and we're just taking the top third of the plant and then we're moving. And we're trying to mimic, you know, the, the wild herds that were here for a million, I don't know how long, for years, before a white man came and basically shot them all. These animals moved across the landscape. And so we move our animals twice a day, 365 days of the year. In the springtime when the grass is growing quickly, we may even move them four times a day. We're just trying to always keep that grass plant in a vegetative growing state. Once the grass plant gets overly mature and puts on a seed head and starts to turn to color, you've, you've missed a golden opportunity to put a lot of weight on your animal. Yeah, you're not going to get rid of that unless you put dry cows on it. But, you know, you're doing more than just putting, you're doing more than just moving the cows. That's what you did when you did rotational grazing. The mob grazing that Ian does, I had read some crazy stuff. Like he might put a few thousand cows on 100 acres and then move them every day. So just visualizing 100 acres and seeing 4,000 cows there. And obviously what he's trying to do is to create a frenzy where they will bite everything but bite it once and then move them to the next paddock is that right that's right because anytime you put you group animals together it becomes a competition because if i don't eat it tim you're going to okay so the less palatable plants that they would normally just go by that that doesn't happen anymore with mom grazing with, with proper mom grazing and that's that's the thing i feel kind of sad about so many people got the wrong connotation of what mom grazing is they think mob and they think just nuke it, you know, take it all, beat it to heck. No, you're still living, you're still dealing with, with living, breathing animals. They've got to have the proper forage or they're not going to do very well. So there's two terms. There's called landscaping mode where you're beating up the ground, tramping the dead stuff on the ground. And then there's also animal performance mode. In animal performance mode, if you've got a cow 60 days before calving, that's when 90% of the calf is born. You don't want to be landscaping, trying to beat, beat all the stuff down. You want to give her the best nutrition you can. So you're focusing her intake up on the top part of the plant. That's where your energy level is the highest. Hmm. So, you know, bringing this full circle now, you, you know, if you go back to the early 90s, you had, you know, a history on the land and farming, and you were farming in a conventional way. And then, of course, you were introduced to uh, rotational grazing and then later to mob grazing. Originally, I'm sure you were probably raising, you know, because back then people were raising, and some people still are, large frame Angus, big cows. I'm wondering what if your mindset has changed over the years in terms of what the right type of cow and what the right size of cow is to be and to, to work well in this mob grazing, rotational grazing model. Tim, that is an awesome question. <laughs> I'm glad you, you, you brought that one up because, yeah, it's, it's huge. Um, I was under the mindset you had to have a big old cow because, you know, you're going to sell a big old cow. And I was focused on weaning weights. That's the stupidest thing there ever was. You should be focused on animals' weight put on per acre, not per animal. So it's gain per acre. You can run more of them. I was. I was running great big cows and great big bulls, and they were tearing up my pasture, especially when I custom grazed. I had to graze what they sent me, and I was grazing 1,800-pound cows. And when it rained, I didn't sleep very good at night because they would absolutely destroy your grass. 
And so if you look at the economics of it, a big cow, they're just not, they're never going to wean 50% of their body weight like a thousand pound cow. Would. A thousand pound cow will not chew up your land. They won't eat as much forage. And in the wintertime, they'll cruise. They'll cruise right through the winter. They will not get thin like those great big cows do. They don't require grain to get in the bleed back. Tim, I did all this for seven years. I custom grazed these great big cows. Mm. And I was out there feeding them breeder cubes in the summertime. Those cows couldn't get enough energy to bleed back. If you didn't feed them breeder cubes, you came up with 40% open cows. And it always bothered me. I'm like, how are these people making any money? They weren't. They still aren't. Yeah, and not to mention, if you want to grow your herd. Put a small barn today and sit in there and look at the size of the cows that come through there. They're monsters. And if if your goal is to grow a herd also, I mean, if you've got a 2,000-pound cow, it's going to give you one calf. If you have two 1,000-pound cows, you're going to get two calves. Yes, absolutely. And when you go to sell those calves, which one's going to bring the most per pound? The the 2,000-pound cow is to say she wings an 800-pound calf. Okay. You go sell an 800 pound calf, Tim. I'm going to go sell two 400 pounders. Tell me which one brings the most per pound. You're, you're 400 pounders. Absolutely. So you got more of them, you can get more per pound, and you get a higher percentage breed back, and the cows don't destroy your calf. Mm. I mean, well, you've had to, un- no you know, we homeschool our daughter, or of course, some people call it unschooling. You've had to be, you've had to be unschooled, Greg. <laughs> I have. I mean, I'm so unconventional. My neighbors all think I'm nuts, and that's 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 all right. Anybody yeah. in this space of doing some type of what we like to call, or whatever our permutation of sustainable livestock grazing is, we're all yeah. nuts in whatever way it may be. But you know, um, it makes a lot of sense, and I think it's proven. I mean, your model is very much proven. And by the way, you've mentioned the 16 farms and all the work that you're doing, moving twice a day, sometimes three or four in the spring. Um, how many people are we talking about that are in your farming enterprise? Two. Okay. There's two people. Yeah. <laughs> two people at a big and a fast four wheeler. Yeah, two people, not including myself. I've got a full-time ranch manager now, and then I've got, we do run an internship program here. We take an intern on for one year. Uh, we provide housing here on the farm. Uh, everything's paid for. They get a, a stipend so much a month. And we teach them how to be good grazers, and we find a job for them when they leave here, if they're good. If somebody's passionate about learning, we can teach them. But if they're not passionate, I don't want them here. And we screen them, we bring them in and let them work with us, and then we pick out the best. Hey guys, this is Ryan at Freedom Valley Farm in Maryland. Just wanted to take a minute to tell you how much we love the Small Farm Nation Academy and the Farm Press website that came with it. Thanks, Ryan. If you want to join Ryan and the other members of the Small Farm Nation Academy, head on over to smallfarmnationacademy.com. Now let's get back and finish up our great discussion with Greg Judy. So it's easy for me to visualize Ian grazing or mob grazing, the, you know, the 4,000 animals on all the, the land that he has. What if somebody had a small farm? Let's say they've got 50 acres, 100 acres, and they've got some cows, and they really are just intrigued by this idea of mob grazing, and they'd like to do it. Do you think there's any, what are the minimum sizes in terms of property and animals that somebody would need to, to implement this strategy? Uh, one, one, one cow. <laughs> one, one cow. We're just going to give you ten feet. <laughs> we had a guy come to the grazing school several years ago, and he had one cow, and he went home and staked that cow out in his yard. It was his milk cow, and he moved her twice a day, morning and night. She grazed a really nice circle, and he he did that all summer long around his yard. He never had to mow his yard the whole summer. And I mean, he had a really nice horde of grass out there, but he didn't come back until the grass was recovered. But with that cow in a 60 foot circle, she was really getting some impact. He still get in the fertility, the poop and the pee, and he had her on a rope. He had her on a rope. Hmm. So you can do it with small acreages. It's all scale relevant. What about dealing with um, cow patties out there? Because a lot of people do that with, you know, moving chickens behind or whatever. I don't think that's what you're doing. 
Uh, granted, if granted in Ian's case, if you've got 4,000 cows on 100 acres, they're going to trample that into the ground. But if you in a smaller environment where this guy had one cow, that's not going to be the case. So how do you deal with that? Or how would a small farmer deal with that? Well, we do have chickens. Uh, we've got a, a young couple now on the farm that's running 600 laying hens. They can't, they can't keep up with our cows, though. But the cows, uh, matter of fact, uh, tonight, when we move the cows across the road, they'll be in with the lame hens on that farm. We graze up to them. We go around them. The chickens will be going through where the cows have been sometime. Um, and we do have tree swallow houses. We've got uh, uh, 450 tree swallow houses all over our farms. The tree swallow, it's a bird that actually, a pair of them can eat 8,000 flies per day. And so we get a lot of predation of flies with tree swallows. The natural fly, you might say, uh, fly repellent. <laughs> mm. um, by moving the cattle, uh, the, uh, the, when you're moving over large areas like we are, we're leaving a lot of that fly load behind us. On a smaller farm, I could see where you, it's going to be harder for you to outrun the flies. That's why I really stay focused on Two things, get you some tree swallow houses. The other one is get slick hided cattle. You want cows that when you take your hand and run down their back in the summertime, your hand comes back oily. The more oily the surface of that cow, the less fly she's gonna have on her. If she's got flies all over her, it's because she didn't shed off her winter hair coat, sell her. Don't keep that cow. That's a fly magnet. All she's doing is bringing in more flies to attack your good animals, get rid of her. She's not gonna make you any money. She's gonna give you another fly magnet, a baby, it can be the same way, get rid of it. So are these slick cows, is that a trait that you breed for when you select your breeding stock and then breed from there on? Absolutely, uh, our breeding stock, the one we use is called South Pole. Uh, Teddy Gentry down in Alabama developed it. It's a four-way cross, a Cinepole, Barzona, Red Angus, and Hereford. It's a red-hided animal. I picked red because I wanted heat, heat resistance. A black-hided animal heats up a lot more in the summer than a red one does. Uh, also, the Cinepole crossing there gives them this really oily, short, slick hair. And I mean, you can go out there on my herd and people will come in. We do farm tours quite a bit. People say, Greg, where's all your flies at? I'm like, well, I've got some flies at. No, you don't understand. Where's your flies? I said, our cows are covered with them. I'm like, well, that's what I've got, what you see out there. So a lot of it is, Tim, you've got to be the predator in your herd. Pick out the animals that don't work and get rid of them. That's good advice. Listen, uh, we talked about the perimeter fence on the um, the new land you should lease, but I didn't ask you about uh, interior in terms of uh, portable fences and reels and and I know that these have changed over the years, but current, your current thinking, what are your preferred sources for reels and line and the post? First of all, interior fencing is a bare minimum. I don't want very much of it out there. Um, I've, I've ripped out in the last five years, probably 40,000 feet of high tensile water paddocks, permanent one wire paddocks. I'm up. I hate them. I hate them because every permanent paddock you put in, you've got a gate. When you have a gate, you got a mud pit trying to get through there in wet time. So we don't have hardly any permanent paddocks anymore. We have a, a geared reels. The best one out there is called Terragate. It's a three to one ratio. And then the best wire to put on them is from PowerFlex Fence Company here in Missouri. Um, I haven't found a poly braid out there that works as well or as long. I've got poly braid on some of those reels that's been in there 15 years. Oh my goodness. If you reel off the first hundred feet, what's underneath? It looks like it's brand new. Hmm. It still looks like it's brand new. I started out polywire. You're lucky to get three years out of polywire. Hmm. Polybraid. It's not that much more expensive and it lasts. The best step-in post out there is made by O'Brien. And you can get those through PowerFlex or Kenco Fence Company. Uh, there's a lot of lookalikes out there, so don't be tricked into thinking you're buying an O'Brien and you're not. If it says O'Brien on the box, you're good to go. But, man, there's a bunch of them out there that don't look like them. I mean, they don't perform like an O'Brien. They just snap in two. 
Yeah, no, I've, I've had some, I've had too much experience pushing a pole into the ground, one of those thick bottoms and stuff. And oh, I've, had, I've, I've, but Greg, I've actually been in drought out there with my drill, and I had to drill a hole first before I could get the post in the ground. Been there, been there, done that. Yeah, I've got a whole pile out here. I'll give you Tim if you want them. No thanks. <laughs> so, great big. In, in addition, in addition, you've had some actually, you've had some very helpful books for me and others. I mean, I know you wrote No Risk Ranching first, and then Comeback Farms in 2008, which is right here on my bookshelf behind me. But today, um, you're also doing. I see that you do a fair amount of events and things like that. What what events do you do on a regular basis, or do you have coming up maybe next year that people can participate in to learn more about you and what you're doing? Yeah, um, I. Well, just here immediately, I'll be going to uh, the Stockman Grass Farmer Multi-Species School in Scar uh, Charlotte, North Carolina. I'm doing a two-day class there. And then immediately after that class, I'll be doing a civil pasture school in Charlotte. And then I come home. I'm only home for like a day. Then I go to um, London, London, Ontario, up in Canada. And I'm doing a workshop up there. And then from there, I'm going to the Savannah Institute in um, Madison, Wisconsin. So that's kind of my winter schedule. And then um, in January, I'm doing one here in Jeff City. It's a Mid-American Grazing Conference, I think. And then in Indiana, I think there's one in March that I'll be speaking at. Are you doing so, another mob grazing conference with Ian next year? Absolutely. It's always the uh, first week of May. It starts on Thursday and goes through Saturday. It's held here on Judy Farms, and Ian and myself teach it. We have pasture walks every day. Uh, we cater in the meals. It's a great time. We have people here from all over the world. Uh, last year, we had Latin America, Canada. Uh, I think we had some in Australia. Uh, we, it's just a really nice wide range of different people. And it's not people that are maybe into ranching, but thinking about getting started. So we'll have people that come that have 100,000 acres. We may have somebody come that hasn't even bought a farm yet. So there's a, it's kind of nice to see that diversity of people. Yeah, it sure is. Where, where do people go to keep up with you and to learn more about these events and the schedules and things like that? We, we do have a Facebook page, a Green Pastures Farm Facebook page, and then we have our website, greenpasturesfarm.net. Greenpasturesfarm.net. Uh, That's a great name for your farm, Greg, Green Pastures Farm. <laughs> yeah, we got that one years ago. There's a few lookalikes out there that, I don't know, one says greener pastures, and then I don't know, they're they're close to ours, but they're not exactly like our website. So, yeah. That's awesome. Greg, Judy, thank you so much for sharing all this wisdom with us. I mean, it's, it's incredible talking to you and love what you're doing and can't wait to keep up with you next year. All right, Tim, we enjoyed it and uh, you have a great day. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to Small Farm Nation. If your goal is to own a thriving farm business with loyal customers who gladly pay you the prices you deserve, check out smallfarmnationacademy.com. Small Farm Nation Academy includes hundreds of video and audio lessons, farm stock images, a community forum, business plan templates, and resources that will help you market and grow your farm business. Plus, you get a state-of-the-art farm press website free with your membership if you want one. And that includes hosting and email unlimited accounts. And get this, as a Small Farm Nation Academy member, you get personal one-to-one -one coaching from Tim free anytime you'd like. Small Farm Nation Academy is like having Tim as your own personal farm marketing and business mentor on call, but at a fraction of the cost of in-person consulting. And Small Farm Nation Academy has a full, no questions asked, seven-day money-back guarantee. So there's zero risk to you. The time to start marketing and growing your farm business is now. If you're serious about having a profitable, thriving farm business, join smallfarmnationacademy.com today. If you enjoyed this show, please share the love by leaving a five-star rating and review on iTunes, and by introducing Small Farm nation to anyone interested in farming or local food. Thanks for your support and until next time, thanks for being part of Small Farm Nation.